Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thanks for joining me for another installment of New Books in Military History. This is your host, Jay Lockenauer from Temple University. And with me today is David Morgan Owen, a lecturer at King's College in London and author of the recent book, The Fear of Invasion, Strategy, Politics, and British War Planning, 1880 to 1914, which appeared with Oxford University Press. Uh, Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Hi, Jay. Thanks very much for, for having me on. Um, I suppose it depends really how far back one wants to go. If you wanted to be particularly kind of um, Freudian in your analysis, I guess you could say that like many uh, young kids growing up in in the British Isles, you're kind of surrounded by history from a very young age. Uh, In particular, my parents kind of viewed taking me to various kind of castles, military museums, uh, that kind of thing is a great way to keep me entertained at the weekend at a young age. So particularly living... Uh, near Portsmouth, which some of your listeners may know is the home of the Royal Navy and has the very extensive historic dockyard there with HMS Victory, Nelson's flagship and, and HMS Warrior as well. Um, I was kind of taken, given the run of those places from from quite an early age. So maybe you could say that my parents had a big hand in kind of shaping my future trajectory as a scholar. Um, but in a, in a more uh, academic sense, I guess, I did my uh, my undergraduate, I did all of my degrees actually, but um, down at the University of Exeter, down in the in the southwest of the of the UK. And at the time that I was there, there was a real strength in naval and and military history. You had the opportunity to study with people like Jeremy Black, uh, Nicholas Roger, Mike Duffy, uh, Richard Overy. The list kind of goes on of these really really eminent and and eminent uh, academics and also wonderful teachers. So that kind of got me going into the general area of naval and military history and pursuing in it a bit more of a kind of rigorous sense. And it was during probably my master's and towards the end of the master's, the beginning of the PhD, writing up that kind of master's dissertation that I really zeroed in on this sort of what I find to be a fascinating topic of the Royal Navy uh, and British defence policy in the First World War era before and during the, the, the Great War. And I guess my interest kind of began on, on the naval side in this era where kind of um, it, in some ways it's a very modern era with kind of new weapons like HMS Dreadnought and submarines, etc. And in some ways it's a very traditional one as well. They, there is no radar kind of war at sea is kind of like the Mark one eyeball still the, the only way to find where the enemy is so that kind of draw me into the, the naval side and it was through that that I progressed into this uh, into writing this project so this book is really more about st- strategy or grand strategy I, w- I would say correct yeah definitely so so when I was doing the the kind of masters in the beginning of the PhD my uh, my kind of areas of strength what led me into the invasion stuff was really the naval side because it was talked about a lot in in various naval circles but to, to think about invasion as a naval problem is very much to only tell a small part of the story because as I hope I illustrate in the book, 
the issue of invasion has implications for so many different parts of British defence and in many ways is kind of at the heart of discussions of grand strategy because how each of the services prepares to defend the United Kingdom has lots of implications for what it can do elsewhere. How many men the army thinks it needs to possibly repel an invasion has a role in determining how many men it could send to India or how many men it could send to Egypt. Um, and, and how the government intervenes in this debate is a really crucial way of kind of framing, I guess, what we would refer to today as, as grand strategy. So one of the things that, that I really liked about the book, and I, I'm a German historian by by training, and I think we all we, we all at least think we understand the run-up to the First World War as one of rising Anglo-German antagonism, and we, we you obviously get to that, um, especially after 1905, but it, it was interesting and helpful, I think, to see the extent to which the British were worried primarily about Russia and then its and its ally France, especially in the in the eighteen nineties and early years of the twentieth century. Yeah, very much so. I mean, this is a very live debate in the kind of histo- historiography, which is what what role Germany actually did play in kind of pre First World War British foreign and, and defence policy, as as I'm sure you know. Like, at what point maybe did an the threat of the dual alliance of France and Russia kind of supplant be supplanted by that of Germany in the minds of people that are worrying about these kind of issues. When it comes to to invasion, this is very much uh, France is at the forefront of British minds in the 19th century as the kind of legacy of uh, the Napoleonic Wars, a lot of the propaganda that was put out during that time, kind of demonising Napoleon and very much uh, presenting him as a very real and imminent threat to British shores, as indeed he he did kind of pose in, in 1803, 1804. And that kind of carries on during the 19th century aided obviously by the fact that France is is Britain's closest continental neighbour. You know, you can see over the Straits of Dover on on a clear day. So it seems to present that kind of real and pressing danger in a geographic sense. But also the relationship between France and Britain was was arguably the most Britain's most important continental relationship during much of the 19th century in in, in a multiplicity of ways. And it was very complex, characterised at some times by a lot of of, uh, cooperation Crimean War, for instance, and at other times by very fierce competition and suspicion. And time and time again, when that comes up, this issue of invasion keeps coming around. It just seems such a convenient kind of way to explain to the British population how uh, the arrival power could affect their sort of daily lives, just personifying it in the way of an invading horde kind of coming through their town, village, city is just a way of making it realisable, I think, to this kind of average Britain and to really get a groundswell of public opinion behind the need to do something about some of these issues. So there might have been in strategic circles much more worry about something far out in the empire, be it the defence of trade, be it the defence of India, the position in Egypt. But it's difficult to get the public excited about that. So when you kind of are in the market for maybe putting some pressure on the government to increase spending on the army or the navy, invasion and a French invasion in the 19th century is really kind of at the heart of this. Interestingly, the the Germans play their first part kind of in the in the kind of milieu of invasion fiction in in the 1870s around the time of the the kind of franco-prussian war and this illustrates a kind of second part to these popular discussions of invasion which is that their reaction in some ways to the impact of changing technology 
So you see this with the French, with the advent of steam power in the 1830s and 1840s. This creates a, a big invasion scare around that time. Prime Minister Palmerston says that steam has bridged the channel, uh, and, and this is a great concern. When it comes to the, the Franco-Prussian War, there's a good deal of speculation in Britain that the incredible organisational capacity demonstrated by the German general staff, their ability to meticulously plan kind of movements by railway, etc. This is a, represents a fundamental change in in the character of of war and needs and could indeed manifest itself by you know the, the general staff planning in a similarly efficient manner to you know, load men onto ships and, and send them across across the North Sea. So there's a little outcrop of kind of fears of Germany around that time. But as you suggest, that kind of secedes in the 1880s and 1890s until really coming to a head in the, the first decade of the of the 20th century. Well, it'll be interesting. I'll, I'll try to pick up on this later about why that shift occurs. And, and I was surprised, at least in your telling, about how rapid the shift was really just between 1904 and say 1906, when the Germans are firmly in the in the position of an enemy, uh, how rapid that, that transition is. But let's, let's just, I want to make clear to listeners, it was clear to me having read the book, but um, the way in which a threat from Russia to India uh, affects the deployment, the training, the size of the British Home Army. I mean, it's again, it's obvious to me, but clarify that briefly for our listeners why why that matters. Yeah, of course. So, as I'm sure your your listeners will be aware, India is kind of a really important part of of the British world system. It's the kind of second pole of of British military power. So, India has has a the second largest garrison out of anywhere in the empire after Britain itself. And from there, expeditions kind of can be sent out to areas in, in Asia and Africa. Indeed, the first British troops that reached South Africa during the Boer War come from India. Um, in terms of the relationship between the home and the Indian army, the European garrison of India is always relatively modest. It's it's um, augmented by a large Indian army. Um, however, the European garrison uh, is it's larger than it was at the beginning of the 19th century. It's enlarged after the the so-called Indian Mutiny uh, of 1857, although that's a, a disputed term. So the European garrison gets a bit larger then, but as the European garrison of British the British troops in India gets bigger, so seemingly does the threat to India from Russia grow. So in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, Russian power kind of uh, expands southwards into Central Asia. The Russians gradually kind of annex and, and take control over various provinces um, in Central Asia. And this begins to present a more and more pressing threat to the so-called Northwest Frontier, which is kind of the, the limit of British power uh, in India, which runs beyond the, the, the boundaries of what we would recognise as India on the map today and kind of um, through into, into Afghanistan. The British begin to get more and more worried and preoccupied about how to deal with this threat. Um, there are a series of, of options, one of which is to kind of install uh, a, a client regime in Afghanistan that might be able to kind of create a buffer. But there's various problems with that. It's difficult to install a sufficiently uh, reliable leader who will not just play off the Russians and the British against each other. So the other solution is to increase the amount of British military power that is held in India. Um this gets complicated, however, because you can either ask the authorities in India to pay more money to have more British troops permanently stationed there, or you can increase the reliability on moving men 
from the British Isles, where it, it's cheaper to maintain them, they're less likely to be affected by various uh, diseases, etc. They're moving those men that it's cheaper to keep in Britain by sea to India in the event of some kind of Russian encroachment along the, Af- the, the Afghan border or indeed towards the northwest frontier. So the relationship between the two in a military sense is that essentially the ultimate reserve of men uh, for the British Army in India is held in the British Isles because it's cheaper for them to be there uh, during peacetime. And in the event of war, they're going to have to get there by sea uh, relatively quickly in order to uh, enable some sort of coherent British response to occur on the northwest frontier of India. So that's where there, there then develops, a, I don't know if rivalry is the right term, but at least tension between the the army and the navy over how to solve that particular problem when it's okay to transport troops and so forth. Um, and then they create this amazing institution the British do called the Committee for Imperial Defense. Does that uh, solve the problem somehow to coordinate these various forces? Yeah. So, so as you say, the army and the navy, and indeed the army at home and the army in India, which are sort of, um, isn't that the Indian army is not necessarily completely subservient to the home army. There are a lot of very difficult political conversations that go on in the 1880s and the 1890s about how to solve this problem. So the army in India is, is quite clear in what it wants. It just wants more men added to the garrison of India or it wants a really firm commitment from London that in the event of hostilities with the Russians, this many men, uh, the number of which they keep right, keep uh, escalating as a century goes on, this many men will get to India this soon after the outbreak of hostilities. So the army in India wants more men. The army at home is slightly more... Um, I suppose it has a slightly different perspective being that much further away from the Northwest frontier. What the army at home is worried about is a cost and B they don't want to just wed themselves to purely being the reserve for India. They're mindful that the army may need to go and do other things in other places. It may need to conduct operations against enemy colonies. It may need to reinforce Egypt or other threatened areas of the empire, or indeed it may need to take the offensive somewhere other than on the northwest frontier. So there's a strong school of thought, uh, primarily populated by officers that fought in the Crimean War, people like uh, Lord Wolsey, who think that the best way to defeat a Russian encroachment into Central Asia is not to send the army to India, but it's actually to strike at Russia in the Black Sea, along the Black Sea coastline somewhere, in, in a more kind of amphibious operation. So the army at home is a little bit sceptical about how many men to send. So there's this kind of inter-army debate going on. And the Navy, which is obviously crucial to safely sending the, uh, any kind of army from Britain round to India, where it could be menaced, not so much by the Russian fleet, but particularly by the French, who after the early 1890s are in alliance with the Russians. And it therefore seems likely that if Britain is fighting Russia, it may be dealing with at least a um, a kind of aggressively hostile, if not actively belligerent France. So the, the need to protect the, the, the troop convoy is very much there. What the Navy is saying is, we're going to have our hands full at the outbreak of war because British trade is going to be under a lot of threat from the various operations of the French Navy. And in order to cause the country a major problem, because Britain's so reliant on seaborne trade, the the French don't have to be particularly effective in terms of destroying very large numbers of ships. 
all they would have to do to create a major problem in Britain is to create a panic amongst the insurance and shipping markets, which meant that ships were unwilling to put to sea. Britain imports sort of between 50 and 60% of its food by calorific value at this point. And that, that would create major, major problems in Britain. There could be food shortages, there could be all sorts of domestic disturbances. So the Navy says, this needs to be our number one priority. We can't give you a defined time after the outbreak of war when we could send the army to India. So essentially what we have, if we think of these three poles of power, the, the army in India, the army at home, and the Navy, is a stalemate. The army in India says... We want more men. The army at home says, well, we can only send them to you on certain circumstances and we're not sure how fast. The Navy says we have all sorts of uh, problems to deal with at sea and we can't commit to getting the army to India in a defined time frame. Now, these issues are kind of bubbling along in the in the, in the background, becoming increasingly um increasingly venomous minutes are being sent around between the various departments in the kind of 1880s and 1890s that the authorities in india are basically accusing the the authority the military authorities in london of lying and using the navy as a justification so we have this big argument going on it kind of reaches crisis point uh, around the time of the Boer war now this happens for two reasons this happens for an underlying financial reason the cost of defense is growing very, very steeply during this period. Um, this is in part due to the escalating costs of modern warships, which are getting more and more expensive, um, but also the need to to maintain various garrisons around the world and that there are other factors that are involved. Um, so there's that underlying problem. And then all of this is exacerbated by the kind of shock of the Boer War. Now, what the Boer War does is, is several things. Firstly, it costs an exorbitant amount of money. So the underlying financial issue is made worse by the kind of shock of the Boer War. Secondly, the British Army does extremely badly in South Africa. It suffers numerous kind of embarrassing defeats at the hands of a relatively lightly armed, um, comparatively speaking, and, and, and poorly organised Boer militia. And it kind of struggles for three years to basically uh, subjugate the, the rebellion going on in South Africa. And the third, less obvious part of this, which is the real concern for a lot of military planners at the time, is the shortcomings that the degree of military mobilisation required to win the Boer War reveals in the British military system. So essentially, the British state's ability to raise um, reserve and auxiliary forces train them sufficiently to make them useful and get them out to South Africa is revealed to be um, far less than optimal, Is would be a charitable way of saying it. And a lot of the regular army that comes back from South Africa um, comes back with the impression that the auxiliary forces, so the second line army, elements of that, particularly what's called the volunteers, are very, very, very low value in a military sense. And whilst they were just about enough to get over the line against the Boers, in the event that Britain has to fight a more militarily capable enemy, these troops are very, very unlikely to be of significant value. So what we have here is essentially this kind of background problem brought to a head and illustrated in really sharp relief by the crisis of the Boer War. Now, this puts all sorts of pressure 
on the government back in Britain. It puts pressure on it from a financial perspective, but also there are a lot of, uh, of people that are crying for inquiries into the war, more effective ways of going of, of administering the British Armed Forces in a kind of mutually complementary way and also a cheaper way. So there's various political arguments that go on during this period from from all sorts of people. Uh, Leo Amory, Winston Churchill, all of these people are are pitching in 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 one way or another. Winston Churchill sort of cuts his parliamentary teeth lambasting the the, the government over army reform during this period. And, And what the government does then is haltingly and after a series of kind of um abortive attempts to fix this internally is to appoint a committee as you as you rightly refer to the committee of imperial defense at the end of 1902 to basically see if it can overcome some of these really long-running knotty problems and in the process hopefully achieve some economies in what the british state needs to to spend in order to ensure its defense and the defense of its empire so it's begun with the kind of uh, inevitable dual motive, the one that I'm sure all students of sort of strategy and defence policy would be very much in favour of, you know, greater degree of coordination, you know, bringing people together to have these important conversations and the inevitable political kind of financial undertones, which are how are we going to reorganise the army to A, make it work and B, make it cheaper. And this is the kind of mood music that's in the air at the end of 1902. Um, what the committee goes on to do is essentially try and address the problem that existed between those three poles of power that I outlined uh, a minute or two ago. It moves to address at the same time, basically the two key questions it needs to resolve, how to defend India and what are the number of forces that are needed to defend the British Isles. Now, these two questions are clearly related, as I, as I explained earlier, in that what you need to defend Britain determines how many men you might be able to send abroad. Um, and, and through answering these two problems in series during the course of 1903, the government aims to kind of uh, uh, achieve a degree of coherence within British strategy making that hadn't existed for the previous kind of two decades. Am I wrong to suggest that that your argument is that they don't solve that problem or they don't establish that coherent policy? Because I see them, I mean, whether it's the political leadership or the military leadership, the political leadership seems to want to put off the real thorny question, say, of what to do about the continent um, for the, a future government. And the military also is engaged in, both in bureaucratic infighting and also not thinking very, uh, at least in obvious ways, about the the problem of possible continental war yes yeah, so i think i think it depends on precisely when you're asking the question so what historians have have kind of largely said before is that the committee of imperial defense never really fulfilled its potential they kind of view it as a positive step um but that for a range of reasons before 1914 it didn't quite get there I think, broadly speaking, I agree with that. But hopefully what this book does and what what it adds to it is that I take a more positive view of what the Committee of Imperial Defence could have done because I think in its first two to three years of operation, it really did illustrate what was possible for the government to achieve. So I think between 
1902, December 1902, when it was set up, and the fall of the Unionist government at the end of 1905, I think the committee worked about as well as it was possible for anyone to hope that it would during that period. So it didn't completely fix any of these problems that Britain was facing, but you can't ever fix these problems. All that you can do is make a reasoned judgment of how best to meet them with the resources available um, and to produce the greatest degree of synergy between the activities of the forces at your disposal as you can. So to argue that the the Committee of Imperial Defence ought to have sort of foreseen what might have happened during the war and prepared for that, I think is, is maybe asking a little bit too much. But I think between 1902 and 1905, Balfour, Arthur Balfour as Prime Minister, does a pretty creditable job at getting the army to accept the role that he envisages for it, which is to move it away from having this kind of large, unwieldy, inefficient auxiliary force that can't really fight very well outside, can't fight outside the British Isles in that the terms of service that these auxiliaries have mean that they're not obliged to fight abroad. So this army is not actually all that useful, the auxiliaries. He moves them away from that and towards a leaner organisation for the army that has a greater focus upon expeditionary warfare outside of the UK. And what he does to facilitate that is say, look, the threat of invasion is something that is always going to be primarily a naval problem to deal with. You don't need to maintain these large, expensive, not very efficient bodies of men in the United Kingdom in order to meet that threat. So what he basically does is to kind of um, lessen the amount of duplication of effort between the army and navy in this period. And I think it's worth noting that he does actually have to work quite hard to convince the army leadership that expeditionary warfare should absolutely be the highest priority. Um, The kind of arguments that some people have put forward that the army was kind of trying to subvert the political process in Britain in looking for a continental role for itself, I think don't really survive contact with the amount of effort that Balfour has to go to, to really break the military's um, kind of ongoing predilection to think of itself as having a role in this sort of defensive defensive function of the United Kingdom. So I think between 1902 and 1905, the committee shows its potential worth, shows its utility and shows what it can do if it has an able and interested prime minister at its chair. However, in doing so, it reveals really its kind of inherent weakness, which is the committee has no executive power all of its decisions matter only insofar as the prime minister is in the chair and the service ministers attend. So the first order of the Admiralty and the Secretary of State for War attend the committee and then will go away and enact decisions that are made at the committee. So the committee deciding something doesn't really mean anything unless it's it's the its decisions are turned into actions by by the individual ministers responsible. And that will only happen if the prime minister in the chair is engaged and uses the committee as a tool to kind of um, oversee British strategy. Now, for a range of reasons, after Balfour leaves, um, this happens less and less and less. And generally, the committee moves from kind of talking about these 
big issues of British strategy like it does in 1903 to 1904 to increasingly focusing on on quite small technical issues that its secretariat believes it can resolve without having to present senior politicians with the kind of difficult questions that they're just not really prepared to answer. In some ways, that's a good thing, right? So, uh, you know, you're talking about civil military relations in a, in a democratic system where, um, you know, the, the dominance of the, the civilian politicians should be established. But you're pointing out that if they drop the ball, then things can fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, you know, it's completely, in my view, the, the correct thing that the committee is, is dominated by uh, civilians and, the, and that they ultimately make the decisions. What, what Balfour does really, really well is he asks the right questions of the military representatives to get the information that he needs in order to make reasoned judgments on these questions. So to decide the kind of relative priority of what the army should do, be it should the defence of India, the defence of Britain, warfare against enemy colonies, etc. You don't need to be a military expert to make those decisions. You certainly need the advice of military experts and you need to do as much as you can to understand the situation. But ultimately, those are choices that have to be made by politicians. And what Balfour does very well is to ask insightful and searching questions of his professional advisors to enable him as prime minister to go away and then make choices. It's, 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 it's very much an ongoing dialogue. He goes back and forth with them. He gives them numerous opportunities to expound their arguments. But ultimately, the decision is his. And that is very much, in my view, the, the correct way that civil military relations should function in a system that is uh, kind of... In, a democratic would be probably the wrong word to um, apply to British government in this period, but cabinet <laughs> government, certainly. Um, what tends to happen increasingly after Balfour leaves the scene as prime minister, although he stays on as a member of the committee, is that um, you have two other prime ministers, British prime ministers before the outbreak of the First World War. The first one is Henry Campbell Bannerman, who is a dyed-in-the-wool radical liberal and who as Secretary of State for War in the 1890s actually opposed the creation of a general staff for the army on the grounds that he was worried that the military might create a policy for the country and then foist it on the government. So he's quite suspicious of um, military planning in wartime, particularly offensive military planning, because he thinks that this can potentially lead to or encourage um, politicians towards war. And the second person uh, that succeeds him in 1908 is, is Henry Herbert Asquith, who is less radical um, certainly than Campbell Bannerman, and is certainly committed to defence, as we can see by the very large rises in the naval estimates that occur during this period and the sort of steady creep of, of, of military spending after 1908-1909 as well. But he's much less interested, in my view, in these questions. And he's also places a lower premium than does Balfour on a really thoroughgoing investigation of strategy in its grand sense. He's prepared to deal with individual issues, but he's much more interested in the defence and maintaining the status quo than he would be in any more kind of elaborate schemes of strategy. And so Asquith and Campbell Bannerman 
kind of neglect the committee to a great extent. Indeed, that there's a lot of concern amongst individuals associated with it around 1906 that the incoming Liberal government might actually abolish the Committee of Imperial Defence altogether. And I think that's kind of illustrative of the kind of shift in tone between Balfour and then his Liberal successors. I was trying to scan the book to figure out where I was noticing this, but one theme that I detected, especially I think in the second half, was a kind of mutual deception going on between the military and uh, well between the various military branches, but also the military and the and the political leadership. And I I I think I noticed that more so because um, you know the role that deception or self deception plays in German strategic planning, say on the Eastern Front in World War II. I mm-hmm. one of my previous uh, episodes was with David Stahl, who's written a series of books, really excellent books about the Eastern Front, and and that's the theme of his first one on o- Operation Barbarossa. Is that you know Hitler and the military leadership and and the others involved are just are just lying to each other, and the the futility of trying to conduct or cre- uh, formulate strategy in an environment when you're you're your friend, your coworkers are deceiving you seemed especially problematic for the Germans. And I guess I was struck, even if maybe I'm overemphasizing it, to, by the degree to which that seemed to be happening also on the British side. Oh, it's completely true. I mean, that's that David Stiles has written a series of wonderful books that kind of illustrate these themes. And uh, I, I remember listening, tuning into that episode of the podcast. But I think you're completely right to use the word deception. So essentially, what happens during this initial period where Balfour is resolving all of these issues in 1908 or resolving them as much as possible in 1903-1904 is that the navy wins out in a in a large sense politically in this period the army is at the same time undergoing quite a lot of painful cuts and reforms after the boer war and these are done in it's perceived in the army anyway a very aggressive and somewhat arbitrary manner. So lots of people are moved around without a great degree of consultation. And an insult is added to injury in this, in that a prominent admiral, Sir John Fisher, who then goes on to become First Lord of the Admiralty, is actually involved in consulting in these in these processes. So it's a kind of, um, there's a perception in the War Office very much that it's very, very badly done to. And that the Navy, and that, and that Balfour may have been a little bit too pro-Navy, in what he was doing in sort of 1903, 1904. So what this creates is a lot of concern in, not just in the war office, but in in circles sympathetic to the military that by essentially deciding that invasion was something that was almost entirely in the province of the Navy to deal with, what Balfour had done was actually make it impossible to provide a reasonable justification for strengthening the army for all of the other things that it may need to do, be that fighting in India or be that increasingly some sort of operation on the continent of Europe, as we begin to see this danger of Germany kind of hove into view. So what you get is um, a a series of, of agitations in the press and in various political back channels in sort of 1906-1907, where people are beginning to chip away at this idea that the Navy may actually be um, this ultimate barrier against uh, against invasion. And what this does is it, it gradually moves this issue of invasion increasingly from the realm of strategy into the realm of politics, because it's increasingly seen that whoever has the responsibility for defending the British Isles is um, in a dominant political position in terms of the two services. So by winning that battle in 1903 and 1904, the Navy have, um, have 
kept their preeminent sort of funding position and it's viewed very much as having been a victory scored at the, at the the expense of the army. So this agitation eventually manages to to percolate into political circles and they have a new specific uh, inquiry into the issue of invasion in 1907-1908. Now this places the Admiralty in a a very, very difficult position because just as all of this inquiry is beginning to start and various politicians are beginning to pick through the intricacies of what goes on within the kind of um, behind the closed doors of, of the Navy and what kind of war plans, etc. they're propagating, they begin to find out or to, to realise that it might actually be much more difficult for them to prevent a surprise German invasion than it had been to prevent a surprise French invasion. And this is for a series of reasons, but the most important of them is that for the French to have ever invaded Britain across the Channel, they would have needed to collect virtually every French-owned merchant ship in the world. And that would have meant moving ships from the Mediterranean round into the North Sea, bringing them back from the Americas. So this would have been very easily detectable by the British who's, uh, you know, as the preeminent maritime power had this global network of, of telegraphs and wireless and, and would have noticed these disruptions to the flow of, German, of global shipping. The Germans, however, have the world's second largest merchant marine. They have lots of shipping in their North Sea ports, which are served by very, very efficient rail links. So the supposition is that the Germans could move a large number of men, of troops, to North Sea ports very quickly, and that the planning acumen of the German general staff could then get them across the North Sea without necessarily raising an alarm in Britain. So the Admiralty begins to realise that this might actually be a bit of a problem because whilst during the centuries of tension with France, the Navy's built up a kind of infrastructure along the south coast of Britain of of bases, of of, of fueling stations, etc, etc, that's required to support uh, naval warfare in the Channel, it does not have that along the east coast of, of the British Isles. There's work that's going on at a base called Rosyth, which is in the Firth of Forth, which is the, the inlet of water that leads to, to Edinburgh on the east coast of Scotland. But that's not ready yet. And so the Navy doesn't have anywhere along the east coast that it can shelter the fleet safely from some kind of German torpedo attack or maybe it being sealed in by mines and therefore kept from interfering with an invasion. So the Navy begins to become more and more worried about this in 1907, 1908 and begins to explicitly say, if if we fight a war against the Germans, it's very likely that they're going to start it by surprise and it's very likely that they are going to either try and torpedo our fleet at anchor and or land a large body of troops somewhere along the east coast. So just as the Admiralty is realising this, internally it's faced with this politically very sensitive inquiry into the very issue of invasion. Now, the individual who is in charge of the Admiralty at this point and plays the leading role in setting the tone in these um, proceedings of the inquiry is the aforementioned Admiral Sir John Fisher, radical Jackie Fisher, who, you know, many people have have written a lot of, of, of things about, you know, he's this very attractive kind of character. If you ever read his letters, they're gigantic capitalizations, underlining all sorts of different colours, odd biblical references that not necessarily everyone will, will pick up upon. And he's a very, very attractive character. But what he decides to do, essentially, is to play down 
the Navy's worries or indeed not to mention them at all to the government and just have faith that the Navy will be able to solve this situation itself. So he takes the responsibility upon himself to say, I will find a completely naval fix to this situation. We do not want to admit this to the government because admitting it to the government will give a trump card to people in military circles, not necessarily just within the army, but those that are sympathetic to the idea of more spending on the army, a larger army, and possibly using that army to play an active role in some kind of continental warfare. So he essentially misleads the committee. And this goes on during 1908, 1909, 1910. And it's only really when the government returns to the issue in 1913, when Fisher is no longer at the Admiralty and Winston Churchill is now political head of the Navy, First Lord, that Winston comes pretty close to admitting to the committee that at the last inquiry, spirits were essentially running so high and controversialism dominated the proceedings to such an extent that the Admiralty may have slightly overstated the extent to which the navy could have prevented an invasion so as you suggest you know this the the discussion of strategy essentially becomes more and more distorted by the needs of politics and through not necessarily maintaining a firm grip over the discussions of british grand strategy the slightly laissez-faire attitude that the liberal government takes to this actually facilitates that happening so in my reading of it, if the government had been playing closer heed and had been more interested in actually determining the course of British strategy, these conversations may have actually been able to be somewhat more open, somewhat more accurate. But as political attention begins to wander, the services begin to compete very, very fiercely in order to secure the ascendance of what they view to be the correct way of of preparing to fight a war in future. And in order to reach that aim, which I'm sure they're pursuing for all of the right reasons, they begin to pursue it through many of the wrong methods, which is essentially misleading the government about what is actually going on. So I, I love that was a really fascinating section of the book for me because of the way you you draw together things that we may have known at, at some level, but we point out the way they come together at a certain point in time to to warp the way uh, British strategy is constructed. I'm thinking specifically of what you just talked about the the size and uh, of the German uh, merchant marine, the railways, their ability to concentrate quickly, combined with the geography of Great Britain, which and I just had never thought about that when uh, that at that time there were no major installations on the east coast and that was a that was a real eye opener for me um I have to. I guess the British were lucky in some ways that the Germans weren't thinking any more clearly about these problems than than the British were. Uh, you raise the issue. Well, I mean, they're 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 grappling, at least at a certain level, with the notion of is a German or even a French invasion really feasible? Well, this is one of the most remarkable kind of aspects of this story, isn't it? Is that this really is about perception? and how far perception can actually wander away from reality. 
in that the British get incredibly exercised about exploring this issue. And that's that's partly because it becomes uh, an essentially a, a sort of subterfuge for broader discussions about grand strategy. But it seems to have a real pull upon the British psyche as being something that is kind of likely to happen. However, as, as numerous people that have gone away into the, the German archives or the French archives will attest, I mean, going as far back as, as Paul Kennedy writing about us in the 1960s, there seems to be virtually no coherent plans whatsoever, and certainly not after 1903, 1904 at the latest, um, for Germany to do something like this. I mean, the, the, the idea that the Germans would risk 100,000 troops to kind of knock Britain out of the war clearly seemed very, very real in London, but it seemed far less and a far less appealing prospect to the, the the German general who was going to have to organize fighting in the United Kingdom with absolutely no chance of being resupplied or or taken back again. Um, and you know it's it's quite revealing, I think, the extent to which these discussions are not necessarily rooted in primarily in intelligence or in reality, but how so many kind of different types of perception, concern, fear play into them. I mean, whether this is something about kind of the rise of Germany as a rival power, whether this is concerns about the rise of the German fleet, whether this concerns about Britain's naval supremacy being under threat, all of these different things. It's, it's very it's very difficult to untangle which the most important reasons might be. But as, as you completely correctly suggest, there seems to be no solid evidence from anywhere on the German side that this was, this was contemplated at all. Well, I think that's a, a good place to conclude our discussion of this book, but it does make me wonder where you're going to go next, because it seemed like one of the obvious targets could be the more sort of, sort of public opinion newspaper side of the story. You mentioned um, earlier in the interview, um, popular fiction surrounding the fear of invasion. Maybe you were, I don't know if you worked on that with your master's degree and maybe you wanna, you're going to move more in that direction or what, what do you have in mind for the next project? Yeah, so it's you've pretty much essentially described it. So <laughs> great intuition on your part. It's a good idea. But um, so so moving forward, um, what I'm essentially looking to do, as you say, is to incorporate this story that I've told about strategy into its broader context of of public opinion and of British politics during this period. And what I essentially want to do is to look at the role that invasion played. It, as a kind of mechanism for public opinion to exert some sort of influence upon official discussions of strategy in Britain uh, during the 19th century and progressing the story then through into the First World War. Because my, my essential thesis would be that by making, I, I think the, the public discussions of this are crucial to it being discussed so much in the political setting. And I think by it being discussed so much at the highest levels of strategy, and it being so divorced from any kind of, um, well, it, it becoming so distinct from what the services were actually thinking internally by this point, I think that has legacy repercussions for decisions made during the opening year, two years of the First World War. And you see this issue cropping up again and again and again and again, and in, in particularly the naval side, and it being a major influence on on how the Grand Fleet was was fought and used during the First World War. So I'm going to kind of reach back in one sense and incorporate this broader issue of, of public opinion, how that 
influence discussions of strategy in Britain and then move the story forward, <clears throat> on the other hand, to try and trace through the effects of some of this once we get into the, the wartime period. Well, that's great. Well, we'll look forward to that book and maybe uh, have you back on again when it's when it's finished. I warned you uh, in our planning for this interview that I would ask uh, what you're reading now or what should be the next book that we feature on the podcast. Is there anything new that you're particularly interested in? Yeah, so I am reading David Stevenson's 1917 War, Peace and Revolution at the moment, which I would thoroughly commend to you and all of your readers as a, a really wonderful piece of history. So uh, I, I'm sure that many of your listeners will be familiar with David Stevenson, who's written a number of books about the First World War and the pre-war period, including Armaments and, and the Coming of War and With Our Backs to the Wall, which is a book about 1918. This book, uh, which came out with Oxford, I think maybe about a month ago, is is focuses on 1917. Um, and whilst it steers through a series of events that I'm sure will be familiar to a lot of us, it, it does so in a really compelling and original way. And it tells the story of 1917 in, in a very interesting, engaging, but also I think um, new way. And I'm about two thirds of the way through right now and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, so I would recommend that very highly indeed. Well, thanks for the recommendation. And I'm going to be selfish a little bit based on uh, your introduction. I'm planning to visit London next summer and I've seen the tower and I'm going to have my kids with me. Uh, so what should I see in London uh, other than the tower that would interest an 18, a cynical 18 year old boy? Well, cynical 18 year old, that's, that's, that's pretty difficult. So, um, well, there's, there's a few things, I guess, from a kind of, from the naval point of view, the, the Maritime Museum over at Greenwich is, is well worth a visit. You can walk up the hill from there to the observatory, which has all sorts of interesting history relating to timekeeping, um, and has a fantastic view back over the, the Maritime Museum over the far side, which used to be the, the Naval College and over the river to the city, which is which is well worth visiting. And I'd also commend to you the newly redone Imperial um, National Army Museum, beg your pardon. So the, the, the Army Museum was shut for, I think about 18 months, um, but has reopened about six months ago uh, to wide acclaim amongst people that I know that have been. Uh, I'm looking to go myself relatively soon, but that's certainly on my to-do list. So hopefully it'll entertain an 18-year-old. And, and apologies, but were you saying armor or army? Uh, National Army oh. Museum. So it's in uh, it's in. Chelsea. Okay, because there is an armor museum down in the south there somewhere. I'm forgetting where, where that is. Anyway, well, thanks for the suggestions and thanks for taking the time uh, this afternoon to speak with us. Um, this has been uh, New Books in Military History with David Morgan Owen, author of The Fear of Invasion, Strategy, Politics, and British War Planning, 1880 to 1914, which just appeared with Oxford University Press. Thanks again, Dave. Thanks, Jay. Thank you.